Welcome to Live Sense8. I'm Sheila Applegate. And I'm Zach Hansen. In this podcast, we dive deep into the concepts of consciousness and other interesting trivia in the Netflix original series Sense8. We're doing an episode by episode exploration of how we can live a Sense8 life. We're also throwing in some special episodes along the way with actors and crew and people who have contributed to the miracle of Sense8. And this week's episode is brought to you by Denise Natitian, Teresa Helenin, and Divine Phoenix Books. Books with a purpose for a positive change. What's going on? In this segment, we talk about what's up in the world of Sense8 fandom. So... The season two finale special has been announced for June 8th. Get ready. It's pretty exciting that it has been announced. And on top of that, Netflix US Twitter account has started a hashtag since eight Fridays. It's been since eight Fridays here in the world of Zach and Sheila for many months because we record on Fridays. But now the whole world is going to have Sense8 Fridays. Use the hashtag Sense8 Friday and look for Netflix. They did an image, a still from the special episode coming up. And I think each Friday at 8.08 Pacific time, they will be posting something Sense8 in anticipation of the June 8th special. And if you're on Facebook, somebody made a really cool frame for your profile picture. So check that out and spread the word by having a Sensate finale frame on your profile picture in Facebook. Sora Mayan is doing a YouTube series where she watches Sensate for the first time and you see her reaction. So it's kind of fun to um, see her react to the different scenes in Sensate. So check that out. And Twitter handle at A-R-Y-A underscore Rose is taking it on herself to do a promotional video because we didn't see the one from Sensate yet. I'm thinking they might start doing it on the Sensei Fridays. But anyway, you can send a video clip to her. So check out her Twitter at A-R-Y-A underscore Rose. Send her a little clip of yourself and um, she can do a little promo clip. And don't forget, Martin Earhart is still working on the documentary. And so if you have some story or something you want to share about how Sense8 has impacted your life, send it to him. If you want to watch one episode a day leading up to the finale of June 8th, you will want to start that on May 16th. So there you go. May 16th is the start date if you're going to do one episode a day. 
with a big final finale special explosion of the two hour special at the end of that. And if you're anywhere near Vermont in May, Michael Summers, who plays Bug, is doing his one man show, which he wrote, produced, accent, plays 17 characters, Heart in the Hood. You can learn about that at Michael Summers, that's S-O-M-M-E-R-S dot com. And Zach and I will be at his May 6th performance. So if you're headed there and you are going to catch that performance, make sure you look us up. We did post our picture recently. So if you don't know what we look like, you'll just have to like listen around the crowd for our voices. (laughs) All right, let's get this show started. In this episode, we're going to talk about Season 1, Episode 9, Death Does Not Let You Say Goodbye. It was written and created by Lily and Lana Wachowski and J. Michael Struzinski. Let's dig in, Sheil. All right. Who should we start with? Riley. Always start with Riley. Riley, this is a big episode for Riley, I think. Yeah, we get to see uh, a lot more of her story arc unfold, like the history and how she, why she feels the way she does. And, and why really she awesome. is who she is and going back into her childhood. So she meets up with Irsa and she discovers she's a sensate. And we discover she's the one who has really, since early childhood, made Riley think she was a curse. I mean, she defined her life. She did. One of the one of the lines in here, and they and I've brought this up before, but Riley says, "You're not one of the hidden people, are you?" And to me, that really shows Riley's kind of sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. Well, it started when she was a little child, so right. It looks like. But here she is. She's 30 and she's still talking about hidden people. I still talk about fairies. <laughs> right. I'm just saying like you, I think as a person, you need to have a real sense of, you have to be connected with your childhood wonder to still think that hidden people are a possibility. I'm not saying they are, they are not. I'm just saying like her personality. Mm. I think that line just really, I thought it was very revealing as a character. It does show her innocence, but also... She's showing her innocence has been tainted as she grows up and looks at her. So she's looking at her and realizing she's a human being right now, but she's in her childhood remembering having discovered her in the cave singing horrible songs to her and thinking that she was a little a hidden person. So, yeah, so it's like um, that whole lore and whatever that belief system is that set her up to believe she had a hex to believe she caused her mother's death and that she needed to flee is all entwined in that. I agree. Yeah. And then, but then it wasn't just that. We find out that um, Irsa also was at the BPO and that they took her in. Yeah, because it was there. That, but it's called, but they didn't take her in for, because it has a front. There's a front to it that has to do with biological. What is it? Biological preservation. Because she says that her mom 
took her there to make sure she didn't have the same genetic disorder. Riley's mom took Riley in. Right. And then Irsa was working there and was trying to protect her from the BPO and the other side of the BPO because she recognized her as a sensate because she's a sensate. And her way of protecting her was to ruin her life. <laughs> yep. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to lock you up in a tower. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we'll talk about that more later. But yeah. So that was an interesting um, insight into Riley. And then while she's talking to Irsa, Will is visited by Jonas. And they're having a conversation. And now we're kind of combine those two with the other cluster and we get a whole bunch of different information here. Yeah, we kind of have this, like, back to the very beginning scene, we have, like, the good angel and the bad angel dynamics going on, kind of, in this, like, so Angelica <laughs> has whispers on one end and Jonah on the other, and then you have Will and Riley standing there in the scene that we're going to talk about, and they're going back and forth on perceptions. Right. And, and what's good for the cluster and whatnot. Yeah, so we see that interaction and that there's more going on and that one we're going to dive into deeply today because it was in the episode right (laughs) it's important and it was a big trigger for me (laughs) trigger warning triggers are good they help us explore and explode (laughs) (laughs) all right and then kala she's just kind of dealing with the aftermath of rajan's father's attack And we're learning that he had accused the police of being corrupt. So the police are kind of looking to see if Kala is corrupt and it's kind of mixed up. But there's that. But then his mom calls for her. So we see an insight into their relationship, which I think we can say would be a window in a way possibly to Kala's because we tend to repeat our parents. So, but Raja's father is in the hospital bed, and then the mom calls for Kala to help her pray to Ganesh again, because she hasn't done it in a long time, but because he didn't let her. But she says he's a good man. And so I like that again, because, you know, you can have beliefs, but it's... It kind of shows our simplisticness, like I need you because you got a good relationship with his God, so can you help me tell this God that he has a good, is a good man? And it's kind of simplistic in the sense that an ominous, omin- ominous, <laughs> omnipresent, omnipotent, omnipresent, <laughs> omnipotent being would know all these layers and things, but we perceive things from our human concept, so we think even of the omnipotent from a limited perspective. But anyway, they pray. They pray. (laughs) Then we have Wolfgang chilling out at the hospital with his buddy watching, guess what? Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, you noticed that one. (laughs) And uh, his uncle pops in and just really... Wolfgang's still in, in the show. He's struggling with this concept of revenge. And we're going to see that more, too, in the um, following episodes. But his his uncle comes in, and his uncle, he says, 
he talks about how his brother taught him the five things about life. And when his brother died, all he wanted more than anything was just revenge. And he goes on to tell Wolfgang, your blood is in my blood. He's like, I know what you're thinking. I know because your blood's in my blood. And let's just take this up as just a big mistake and not carry it on any further because I don't want to choose my son over you or vice versa because in his own way, he loves them both. Yeah, I totally missed that when I first listened. I You're welcome. I know, right? Thank you. <laughs> I, I guess in my head, I thought that the the shooting came from the top. So I assumed he was a part of it, even though it was his son in the van. So that's where I got confused. And I, I took it more as a threat. But it is really layered anyway, because he doesn't know. Oh, neither do you guys yet. If you're not. <laughs> okay, that was going to be a big spoiler. And I'm not gonna do that. All right. It was a small, it was a small <laughs> scene, but I think it was very significant within Wolfgang's story. So Nomi is in her apartment. She fled there after they were chasing her. She didn't know where to go. And at first I'm like, really, that's where you went? And you knew needs would come? That wasn't really brilliant. But she did hook up with some computer person and made it. Herself. Or maybe she, oh, she did it herself. Yeah, she bellowed herself with Will's badge number. So she hacked the the PD's okay. system, followed herself on a plane to, I believe, Australia. So they weren't going to be coming looking for her anywhere local. Got it. Yeah, so she took care of that, had a little bit of time to go back in and to the apartment and wait for Neats to come. And she's reminiscing and missing Neats, and that pulls her to Lido. Yeah who was at that point in a museum. Leto's got a pretty big story arc in here. But at that point, he's sitting in the museum, um, grieving and reminiscing about his relationship with Hernando, and she can relate pretty deeply. But I think the interesting thing they point out, it's it's that synergy, right? When they're feeling, it's that emotion. of Because he says this isn't a good time. And she's like, it's not a good time for me either. Like, I didn't call you, you called me, you know, don't give me that. But they know they're really much more gentle about it. But it was kind of like that. Um, but it was actually that they were having the same feeling and same thoughts that made them come together. So that's interesting. And we're going to go into that scene a little bit more. Again, Nomi's not, I mean, that's a huge scene. But as far as action going on in Nomi's Life, this is a quiet episode. She's had her action. Yeah, and speaking of Leto, a really cool scene was where he's kind of moping about the bar, having some drinks, and they're having a conversation about the secret self. The bartender says, Yeah. You know, he's talking about that secret life that he has because he sees it in Leto, right? And so, and what I really loved about that is he didn't call it good or bad. He just said, we have this secret self and it is capable of terrible things and beautiful things. So I really love the way that was represented. To me, it really 
is kind of a depiction of what we what I would know as uh, the higher self or the part of us that is super intuitive or supra intuitive and intelligent that we can tap into understand life and maybe the future or the past a little bit better. That's really interesting because I, I, I think he associates, he says something about the natural nature. It's our nature. So I actually took it, which it's, it's not really a spectrum. It's a circle, but I kind of took it from the other end of the spectrum, like the ego primitive self that can do beautiful very natural, instinctual type of energy that can be considered beautiful or terrible depending on society's view or ours, right? Right. I I would have, I felt that, I I thought that's where that conversation was going for me. But as soon as he said beautiful and kind of took away, because we typically construe the ego as something bad and terrible. Yeah, but see, I don't. So that might be why I saw it differently. No, I'm just saying that might be because I can't. So the the, the sort of primate part of ourselves is what I took it as. Right, that that was a lot. Which is everything, yeah. It's interesting, too, because then Leto gets triggered by that because he comes on to him and he knows who he is, and somebody walks in the bar, so he feels threatened, um, vulnerable. He calls him a faggot. And I thought that was really telling because it's that self-hatred that often produces sort of bullying-type behavior or um, hurtful behavior. So it's that trying to protect that part of himself that's terrible and beautiful, because we've seen the relationship, it's beautiful. Right. But the world could perceive it as terrible, or it's been his most fulfilling part of his life and the most dreaded, hurtful, scary part of his life because he's been trying to hold on to his career, and he just blurts that out. And it's just such an example of how we as humans attack what is really ourselves, but outside of ourselves. Right. And in the episode Demons, right, we really demonize, and through Sense8's eyes, we really demonize sexuality one way or another. Humans do. Right. Sense8 doesn't. Sense8 right, does right. an awesome job of trying to dissipate the demonization of sexualization. <laughs> right. So that's in there, too. Yeah. And then we have Sun. Yeah, Sun is interesting. Um, we don't have a huge scene with her, but it's definitely important both to the plot and... It kind of, as we talk deeper about some of the themes and explore some of the clips today, we see that it's kind of related to the themes here, too. But she gets a visit from her dad. Yeah, in prison. Probably the visit she has waited for her entire life. (laughs) Right. Right? Because he comes in and he actually sees her, loves her, realizes that he loves her. And he says... I'm not a good person. When I was with your mother, I was a better person. She made me better. I thought that part of me died with her. And then he talks about with all he's built in his business and everything he has, it doesn't mean anything without her. He had to lose her to realize because he really just ignored her before. He took her for advantage of her and took her for granted. But now he's realizing that it 
it means nothing without her. And he says he's going to tell the truth about what really happened, and she's going to be free. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. Like, we know that very few of our viewers yeah. are watching one-on-one with us, but, you know, it, there's still a long we story. We do not know what we have until it's gone. That includes pain and pleasure. Yeah, sometimes it's like I'm pain, even physical pain. Yeah. Like sometimes I wake up one day and like my knee isn't hurt, nothing's hurting. And I'm like, whoa, this is what I feel. I forgot. I didn't realize I was in pain. And now I feel so awesome today. For me, the first time I, I had that realization was 20 years ago almost. And, you know, you hear the, you don't know what you have until it's gone. Everybody's heard that. But I had that realization actually when I had my first chiropractor visit because I had no idea how much pain I was in until it was gone. Yeah. And that goes with our belief systems too. We just kind of sink them into our our being, our persona, and we go about our time and we, we don't know any different until there's some tools available or a moment happens where we're like, oh, wow, I don't have to carry this burden anymore. I had no idea right. until it was gone. Right. And then we can live new. So that's really exciting. Yeah. All right. Then Riley does have another scene that is with Caffius too. Um, so not a, well, actually, yes. It's a big scene for Caffius based on his connection with Riley. So Riley is at the grave of her husband and daughter. So this is when we're learning that she was married she had a baby. Her intention was to stay in Iceland, have a big family, be a very traditional girl. And now she's a rave DJ. Yeah, that's a huge contrast. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, but she and Caffius are talking, and we're going to go into that a little bit more too. But Caffius tells the story of his loss, which is his mom having to give up his baby sister who he had loved and nurtured. I'd say he was like seven or eight, but a very grown-up seven or eight-year-old, around the same time as the flashback with the zebra. Oh, well, yeah, she was pregnant in that one, so he's older than that. And his mom didn't have milk, and they didn't have food, and so he and she could survive because they had stronger bodies to get through the time but she would have died the baby so they had to give her up and that loss and how that defined him as well all right so let's pop into our first clip here and this is going to be the one with riley and will and jonas and ursa i remember what it was like to first share someone's every thought and emotion this is very dangerous I was in love with Angelica from the moment her eyes touched. Love inside a cluster is pathological. Are you all right? Sometimes. Angelica believed a sense that experiences love in its purest form. Are you all right? Sometimes. Asked when he was born. What? His first birth, ask him. She wants to know when your birthday is. August 8th. 
however far across the world a cluster is scattered. The first breath they take, they take as one. Love inside a cluster is the worst kind of narcissism. There it is. So I gotta go back every time we do this now after we've talked to Ethan. It's like, this music is so amazing and the sounds. <laughs> that piano in there when they're talking, just it's it's glorious because it creates this confusion almost but it's a beautiful confusion as they're they're talking to me and then i think there's a subtle like rain sound in there but anyway it was really there's some background noises in there that i heard that kind of just added to the ambiance of the scene that was even more confusing because will's inside Mm -hmm. so anyway i digress (laughs) beautiful things from the sound and music the symphony of sensate yes well, it's all part of the senses that we uh, yeah. experience. So, yeah, this is loaded for me. I don't even know where to start. How about we start with love versus fear? All right. I can really talk about that. I think that Irsa um, and Jonas, and I know after we're going to get into dialogue about how we perceive Jonas and all of that. But what I see in here is Ursa is so fear-based and so selfish in her perception of everything. And and I say selfish in a way that she would be shocked. <laughs> I understand that she would be shocked if we told her that she was selfish because she's seeing herself as the one helping people. Um, but... To start with here, just the discussion about the love, and they both basically have been in clusters and experienced love. We don't know the whole story. She could be uh, one, she could have been in love with Jonas or Angelica, or, or they could be, I don't know if they're the same cluster or not, but whatever her perception of it, she saw the chaos of what can happen when people that are that close love each other. And the narcissism she perceived, because you're you're loving yourself and the other person when you have that deep of a soul connection. She saw that as narcissistic, and her perception of that, it, to me, is very, very fear-based, where Jonas's experience is that this love is the grandest love of all, and to reach that state of consciousness where you can experience such a deep love that goes beyond your individual self is huge. Yeah, he said that's what Angelica said. Right. He did say that's yeah. what Angelica said, and but he says it out of experience, too. Like, you can hear in his voice that that's how he perceives it. So we have narcissism being like the... Uh, a perception is that it's the lowest form of love. Mm-hmm. And yet, don't you think she's narcissistic in her decisions? I do. <laughs> right. I mean, like you said, we could go on about this <laughs> right. for a long time. I really could. Like um, this. And yes, self, like the the concept of selfishness. So my question to you, because that's kind of what we're on, is in my opinion, is self selfishness more self. And the whole concept behind Sense8 is to expand your idea of self, to include others outside of you, which means you're just getting more of yourself. So my question then to you, Sheila, narcissism being something construed or painted as the lowest form 
of or like um, a distorted form of love? What would be the polar opposite if we were coming through, say, Angelica's eyes or Jonas's eyes or even yours of what the polar opposite would that be to exemplify the highest non-distorted version of love or selfishness? So I usually use the term unconditional love as the highest form or divine love, which is including the human experience, but more than the human experience. So I think it comes back down. And selfishness, I say that you should be selfish. I differentiate it by saying selfishness with a capital S, meaning my higher self, my higher consciousness self. When I'm aware of my most primitive self, but also have expanded into a higher state of self-actualization, then it is my duty to be selfish. Because when I act selfishly, when I know who I am and what I want, and I love that part of me, I can love it in another. So to me, like narcissistic um, and that that self-loathing that we saw in Leto, where he ends up hurting people because he it's it's actually the sexual orientation of Hernando and the bartender that is who he is, but because he doesn't have a self-love, which the negative connotation of narcissism would be self-love, right? It's because of his lack of self-love that he is so hurtful in his love for Hernando or disrespectful of another person in the same situation. So to me, yeah, it talks about our whole skewed idea of what it is to serve someone and what it is to show up in love and the necessity to love ourselves and others. Like it's when we see ourselves in others and we can love that part of ourself that we're truly showing up and loving. Awesome. Thanks for explaining that. Well, it's just my opinion. What's yours? I don't really have anything to add. I just know that, you know, culture and the history of humanity just really has this idea of selfishness. It's kind of upside down, I think. Yeah. And I think so here we see Irsa being so offended and thinking that the love that is reflected in Joan is talking about the love that we know he had for Angelica and the love that she perceived of loving within the cluster and the beauty of that. And and my guess is she didn't live or love linearly. I think that her understanding of love was without restrict or without restrictions or limits, which we get into with Leto and the scene that's coming up later. But we think I can see that if she was in a cluster where everybody's feeling connected and she's willing to openly love the way this group is, but the others aren't coming from that perspective or not able to love at that level, that it could create a lot of chaos in a cluster. And so to me, I see Irsa is the one that's narcissistic 
in the sense of the word of looking out for herself at the risk of others. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one thing about the what I've heard and listened to and kind of watch on the big stage of today's understanding about love is like we have this concept that there's this two-party system. There's love and fear, right? Fear, and then we have the Beatles, and they sing this beautiful song. It's just about love is all there is. And that's the essence of everything. It's just love. And so love gives us the opportunity to express itself through us and fear is love expressed absolutely it's just a what we would say as a lower form of fear so she loves herself so much she was she is willing to jeopardize other people because she doesn't want to open up to that pain of death in any form you know she might have had that experience where she is she loved on such a deep level and she had to give it up and that was painful yeah, I'm sure something kind of formed her. And she talks about the pain. And this is another piece of it. She is an empath. And I mean, they all are. And I believe we all are. And I think it's how we experience it and the level we take it to. But she actually says that she was trying to save the sensates from being taken over by the BPO um, and like sending Riley, making Riley feel unsafe here so she would leave because she didn't want to experience the pain. She experienced the pain of one of her cluster's death and she never wants to experience it again, the pain of a sensei dying. And she didn't want kids because she didn't want them to be like her. So we've got self-loathing in there. And then not only did she not want them to be like her, she didn't want to have to experience the pain of them possibly dying. And thank God she didn't have kids (laughs) because you kind of have to love your kids a little more than your self-preservation to be an impactful parent, in my opinion. (laughs) But... um, She even says she, like, Riley wanted to die before she left Iceland with her husband and her baby. And I'm not saying Riley should have died in that moment, but Irsa is the one that saved her. And she kind of wants, like, to be thanked for it. And Riley's like, I wanted to die. And that's when she's like, yeah, well, it was too painful to feel your pain. So I, I call, you know, I, I risked myself to save you because really, because yeah, I didn't like the pain. Move, Ursa. <laughs> In my opinion. But you know what? How many people, I think why I get triggered is because our societal norms often dictate for us to do dick moves as a way of seeming like good people. For sure. And not actually looking at ourselves and looking at the other person and deciding things from a highest perspective. So many of the, or so much of the human experience is protecting ourselves from death and pain. And so 
she's a great character because she shows us what is wrong about our world or what is not working in our world. And yeah, I like how you put that. What is not working? Yeah. What's not working in our world is this um, fear of death and pain and spending our lives doing everything to keep ourselves from it and to keep others from it. And in doing that, hurting all of us. It's so funny to me as I look out and look at humanity and humanity spends 100% of its time trying not to die. But in the end, we We all all die. die. We all die trying to survive. Crazy. I agree. I I agree with the concept, but I think that there are a few who have died. Sure. There's consciously trying to die. Not, not even like suicidal, just reaching that state and saying, I'm complete now. I surrender. My, I'm only pointing that out because that's my plan in 200 years. uh, In 200 years. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've, there's, there's people in books and have had those experiences, but it's like less than a percentage of humanity actually gets to reach that state of consciousness I and think experience that, and that right, from what I've seen. Right. Well, and also I think for the most part, but I've also been with a lot of people who've crossed over and I think we may be talking last hours, last days, but there's a surrender and a desire to die. Um, at the very end, but we live our whole life right up until that point, you know? Yep. So this also kind of brings me into the trigger that I talked about. And that is, it's not quite in the scene, but it's right around this whole thing. And it's the concept of why you can hear me get so triggered about Irsa. And um, it's that she for the reasons we just discussed, she let she invoked fear in Riley at a very young age, which dictated her life. And it, that is a turning point from what we see with her dad, who was giving her love, what you said about her believing in the hidden people. We see her, you know, having been walking in the caves in tune with nature as a young child. Yes, her mother was dying, but my, the love was so huge. And then this person invokes fear into her, which then dictates a lot of her life. And this person wanted to protect her. And people do that. They lie to kids to protect them, or they invoke fear. So they're ready, because they have fear, they view the light, the world as fearful. So they teach their kids to fear as a, and, and say it's to protect them. But the point we do that to children or in our relationships or religions do this, the government does this, the, you know, schools do this. This is, this is a key, another key aspect of our world as it is now. And that as soon as we teach people not to trust their instinct, and that's what she did by telling her a lie at that age and by constantly invoking and manipulating her through stories and fears, she has created someone who can't trust her instincts, her intuition, her inner knowing. 
not only that, she can't open up to other human beings and love them because the way she, she used to. Right. Or at least worry about what's going to happen to them. Exactly. So we've got that piece that we see happen to a lot of people. And then this is, now we're really it. So it's back to Jonas. And I know <laughs> we're going to get into, oh, I think he's gray. I've already established that he's done something. We know he's done something. We know that from the first scene. We know that he had a relationship with Angelica. We know that Whisper's involved. We know all of these things from the very first scene. And we know that he could be anywhere on that spectrum. First of all, so is she. This woman is working for BPO, too. And she's in there thinking she's doing what she can do to make it better. So, and then we've got the other cluster doing what they can do. You know, everybody's kind of in there trying to figure out how to work with this overpowering organization for thinking they're doing bad things for a good reason, right? And so that sets the stage. We've already established that. The difference and why I will go to my grave defending Jonas until they write him in something different. And if they do, that's going to be the one point where I divert from this show and get pissed. because, And I don't believe they will. But Jonas is the one telling them, no matter what he does, and no matter how much he's lying to them, he's teaching them to trust their instinct. Okay? That's his underlying message. He set the stage with that right in the beginning. So basically... I know I'm going to fuck you. I know there's stuff. I'm I'm playing both sides. I'm caught in this spider web. But before we go into this, trust yourself, you know, because to me, it's even that because at some point you might even have to trust yourself against me. And but he's preparing them for that. But the thing is, and why I think that it's so important, whether he becomes whether we find out he's doing something really bad in the end or not. If the storyline doesn't show him having at least done that and at least being layered and having, no matter what he's doing, doing it for the good of the cluster, then we are reiterating a story that has been disrupting the world for too long. It's in religions. You can't trust yourself. You know, like I said, when I started opening up to angels and the person in my church said, well, the, you know, there are stories in, in religions like God presents himself as the devil. So you can't even trust when you get a good message because maybe it's the devil and, and the spinning and, I've spent 20 something wor years working with people who are trying to trust themselves again. I mean, that's basically my career is trying to get people to remember any, even when they're coming to me and putting their trust in me instead of doing it themselves, but teaching them to listen to their intuitions, listen to their messages. Every single person comes in fear-based. How do I know what's real and what's right? How do I know what's the devil and what's the angel? Whatever that is, we can't let that story go on. <laughs> we just can't. <laughs> My trigger. There you go. <laughs> Preach it, Sheila. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I don't know. I think you're holding back. Why don't you tell us how you really feel? <laughs> All right, I can do the rest of the show now. I've had my say. Now I'm all chill. You feel better? Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
what else do we have in this one? Oh, well, I could tangent on to another rant here, just a little bit. Empathy is another thing. This is a good example to me. I think that we have empathics. Well, we all have empathy. To the level that we self-actualize is the level that we will experience empathy. Empathy, going back to my therapeutic social work training when I was in school, you learn the difference between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy is when you stay outside, you can't relate to the person, um, you really don't get it, but you pour your, um, like, your your sympathy, pour your, like, oh, poor person. You know, you're looking at them like, oh, they're, they're fucked. I feel bad for them, <laughs> right? Thank God I'm not, <laughs> right? That's, can't relate to their story at all, but I feel bad for them. I, I'm really butchering this. This is not the technical term. But basically, you stay outside of it, you feel bad for the person. Empathy, as we were taught, if you understand their perspective, you experience it, you relate it to yourself, and you understand how they would feel, and then you help them through it. So um, that's from a clinic. <laughs> it's a <laughs> Hopefully none of my old professors are listening from the, way back then, but that's a, that's a very butchered definition of it. But then with the trending in the, um, in the world of spiritual dialogue, people talk about being empaths. And a lot of people complain about how difficult it is because they're an empath. Well, I kind of, I mean, we all are, and we all feel things. It's to the degree that we understand ourselves that we can feel that and connect to others. That's what Sensate is talking about. But we have Irsa in here, almost like they said, I feel like they went to the writer's room and they said, hey, let's see what character we could create that would trigger everything Sheila Applegate gets triggered on. Perfect. Got it. I'm pretty sure that was the foundation that, of the discussion. I'm pretty sure that yeah. they, they they may not know. Maybe they only know me in dreams, but they did do this for me. In the future, they were like going back to the past and their future selves were doing this. Like so anyway, triggered, triggered, triggered. Empathic. She's kind of teaching Riley that unhealthy view of of empathy because she's she's constantly feeling. She's bringing in a lot. She also talks about the Sicilium, which in the world of spirituality and new age, whatever world you talk about, but we talk about cutting cords. We talk about taking on people's stuff. This is all stuff that does happen to us, but we reach a level where it's not a threat to us. But the Sicilium, I thought that one was, that's a kind of cool because that you learn even way back in Reiki, like the idea when you touch someone, you have an energetic cord between them and you you blend from that way. So they're, they're talking about that's how the BPO can find them. Tangent there. But she's telling Riley to listen from her heart. Great message, right? But she's also witnessing to her a whole life of that being painful and always just trying to protect yourself from that experience of emotion. And therefore it's difficult, you know? So she hasn't embraced the sensate empathetic experience the way the others are. We have a really healthy cluster um, in the eight that we're 
paying the most attention to. And then she represents and, and it's actually really good. Because when I look at these guys, I'm like, these guys are awesome. They're all adjusting to this so well. And I can see the things that other people usually have trouble with when they open to soul connections. And or they experience empathy too deeply. I mean, these are really common issues in our society of what you end up feeling. So awesome. Yeah. I actually did want now that we're kind of talking blending the the language of the the modern what do we call it? The spiritual movement? Spiritual non non religious movement, but like all kind of the the talk of spirituality lately. But, you know, there's a lot of talks about soulmate and twin flames, and I've mentioned that here. And I think one of the things that I like about this is that even in this episode, they do show, so having experienced a twin flame relationship and having experienced being in the position of supporting people through navigating a twin flame relationship they are chaotic. I mean, I, I as much as I complain, I do understand where she's coming from. Like, they're hard to open up into deep or romantic love, to let yourself um, experience the full spectrum of love within that intensity. But you have to love yourself at the highest level. You have to reach that standard. And it can be messy and it can be difficult. So I think that it's it is really good that they show this in here. And then they're also showing how somebody who is self-actualizing in this space can love someone outside of that cluster. And those loves, even difficult, um, in some ways may be easier to navigate. And to me, that's like you and I. Like this love, there is a love, there is, Everyone's looking for that soulmate or twin flame intense relationship, and those are beautiful, but they can be harder and chaotic. And then you can also love in a soul connection that doesn't have that that same um, intrinsically frictional energy that can come in the cluster energy, as we call it here. From my perspective, when it comes to the chaotic intensity of, of, we'll say, love within a cluster or a twin flame relationship, I think the biggest, like one of some of the hardest challenges are control and free will. Yeah. Right? Because you know, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, you, and within the this construct, yourself is identifying as another that you have zero control over and they need to go have their own experiences and live their own lives and do this. But at the same time, you can't not be that person. So I think that's what makes these relationships super hard is because as an individual, you have to see yourself in another person as having their own free will, making their own mistakes, and you have no control over that. So there's that level of surrender that you have to have inside of all of this confusion. Right. And we're talking about love, but we're really not. We're talking about sex and who we're having sex with. Because it's that as minute we put romantic love, the whole cluster loves each other. You can't not love your cluster. 
really. Like it's just a space of love. It's that love that binds you. It's the love that ignites the communications, all of those things. So Riley and Will are the only one who have so far moved into a physical world relation. No, they hadn't yet moved into a physical world relationship, but they're they well they yeah they called each other they're they're moving towards that romantic concept within the cluster. I mean, Kala and Wolfgang are moving towards that too, and we'll see how that plays out. But there's love in there, so we're really talking about sexual love, which in our world comes with those rules you're talking about, right? So it's not the problem of the love because we've energetically, they've all had sex with each other and pure creation energy, energetic sex. But it's when we take that down to the physical and then we place all the structure of what a relationship should look like in the everyday in the romantic form. And that is maybe sometimes easier outside of the cluster because of what you were saying. If you want a traditional relationship, like Nomi and Neitz and um, Lido and Hernando, which then I go into another layer. Theirs wasn't even exactly, it's traditional, but there's already the society sees that as an outcast and therefore they aren't subject to as many of the rules too. So they're forced to look beyond what you just said. Right. Well, I think when we, we bring it down to the physical level and we talk about sex, I think the from my my point of view the biggest issue with sex on an individual level if you haven't worked through this already it's really about insecurity. Mhm. Right? When when somebody crosses those lines you you got you think to yourself, "Oh, why am I not good enough? Why am I not enough that this person has to go see another person and have sex with them?" Right, but then that's our society view that it should be one person too. And right, it, and I, I'm saying it is that way is because we're we we're not our our perception of of sex and consciousness and identity of self and and letting love express itself in whatever form it may without control. Um, I I just think that we add another element besides control and free will we add insecurity into the mix. And that's why our relationships are so distorted around sex is because we, we have this seed of doubt within ourselves that we're not enough. Yes. And I would I say that's that, the root concept. I would say take it one more level and it's the vulnerability because I think that beyond the, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it starts with society's perception too, because in an in the animal kingdom, I don't know. Are you vulnerable when you've had sex with another, or do you just have sex, you know, as a reproductive act? But there is in the human experience a vulnerability, an opening. There is an energetic exchange when you have sex with someone. It's not just physical. You can tell yourself it's just physical and you can shut yourself out, but it's still going to impact you physically. So because of our human nature and this, you mean it's going to still impact you emotionally and perhaps spiritually and not just physically. Yeah. Like it's an energetic impact, right? There is an energetic exp exchange that is an opening 
and and vulnerability to that energetic exchange that then when you mix in the emotions and all of that becomes makes you feel vulnerable so it's that vulnerability that we experience that makes us want to put rules around it because then we're vulnerable with this person there's an intimacy that happens energetically and then we want to protect that insecurity by placing rules around how we're going to be and then we have right. what and you're we're, talking about we're vulnerable because we have i mean we're i mean this is such a layered conversation but when we uh, in my perspective on what you just said that level of vulnerability comes with expectations so if we didn't have those expectations then we wouldn't be and we have those expectations because of the insecurity we have yeah and i don't know that i have to say i don't know because when i was taught in the metaphysics we were taught that there is an energy exchange no matter what so it was basically and the way that was taught and now that's kind of going old school it's like you share karma from the moment you right you open up energetically energetically so you transfer that and you take on both things so I can see where that does happen. And if you're not paying attention to it, it could happen in your psyche without even realizing how it's impacting you. I don't know if I believe that or not, because I think that, but it, I think that if you are self-actualized to a point, maybe that doesn't happen. But then again, if you're that self-actualized, you wouldn't be having anything to transfer. So I don't know. Uh, my good friend Dean down in Peru, one of his teachers said it this way to him, don't sleep with somebody you don't want to become because of the energetic. Right. Exchange. So that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, and I don't know how that goes past the human. Yeah. The, I think, I think, you know, like you said, I think you're, if you're a sovereign person and you understand your own sense of empathy and beliefs and insecurities and all that kind of stuff, uh, you don't, you, you know, karma was an old construct and we don't need it anymore. Right. I right? agree and with I that, but that some people do like right. it's until you know what exactly. You're doing. Yeah. Until you don't. So I, cause I, I'm a polyamorous person and I think I see things, um, differently when it comes to sex and love and relationships. And, uh, I just, I just think these concepts are, not needed anymore or they're not needed for some people like myself but that was what i was actually starting with that we set these unhealthy rules around it because we thought that we would make it be safe and so so we've got a cluster energetically they're having sex once some of them pair off and have sex or there's a triad that's not comfortable with it whatever that is then if you then take this huge love and then because of that, you place the constraints of our human, of our, our rules that make us feel safe in it. Then you have the issue. And that might have happened in Irsa's cluster. I can see where it's the friction between the limited love, the conditional love, and the unconditional love that makes the chaos of love in a cluster. That's my thought. All right. <laughs> But now that we're talking about love and rules and all of that, let's go into our next clip. 
All right. This is the setup for this is Lido is grieving in the art museum. Mm-hmm. And this is a little clip of his memory. You know, there's a line in your film, The Passion of the Sinner, that always makes me think of this museum. My heart is not a clock. Yeah. My character was always late. Beautiful line. Made sublime by your performance. An apology that is also an anthem. Look, love is not something we wind up, something we, we set or control. Love is just like art. A force that comes into our lives without any rules, expectations, or limitations. And Every time I hear that line, I am reminded that love, like art, must always be free. Beautifully said. Right. <laughs> Basically, this is what we've been trying to say for the last 10 <laughs> minutes or more, right? <laughs> yep. And I think, you know, we're talking, he's talking to Hernando then before they even begin. So their relationship, I mean, that was on their first date that he's reflecting back to. So their relationship was set by that. Hernando reached a point where he had to follow himself. He stayed true to that. And now Lito's in pain. (laughs) But it's what they agreed to and that freedom of you do you and I'll do me and we'll love each other. Mm -hmm. So, but again, if we look back at what we were saying, I think that really is exactly what we were trying to say is that love as the force, which is what is in the cluster, what Jonas is talking about is free and has to stay free. Even if it takes forms. Yeah. Really for me, it's just really the, the expression. My heart is not a clock, but really love must be free. Mm Mm-hmm. Love in its essence, the love that I talk about, the love that is without condition, the love that has no opposite, the love that is a force that everything manifests from, it truly is the ultimate expression of freedom. Absolutely. Right. When we are able to be vulnerable enough to love without condition to love in the face of adversity for love's sake that is freedom because we're not controlled by survival or belief systems or expectations we are just in this free flow state of love for love's sake without those conditions uh, I think this is the pinnacle of what it means to be a human and and what we come down here to experience in our fullest expression of ourselves. Um, but I, so I just, for me, that's what it is. It was just very beautiful to be expressing the the essence of love and transcendent love, not human love. Not, I love you because you do this for me. That's what most of us say when we say, I love you. We're like, oh, man. Thanks for that back rub or taking out the garbage. I love you. That's not love. <laughs> That's like. 
Right. And if you have to sit and decide if you love someone, it's we're never in to me, what I like best about this clip is that it talks about love is a force that must be free. It's not it's a force. It's an energy. So love is always here. Love isn't something we get or don't have or, you know, work towards. It's either you're in the flow of love or you're not. The love is always flowing. It's going to be free. There's no love cannot, you can't, you can't harness love. You can't limit love. Love isn't contained inside of you. Love is a force in nature that you either align with or you don't. And sometimes the connection we feel to another, the similarity, the reflection, the behaviors, they act as a door or a springboard to help us flow in that love. But the love itself is a force. So our relationship is always between love and love. And and whether we're going to be in that state or not be in that state, the relationship is only a playground for us to experience the flow of love if we choose to. Yep. So that's really that that was the big thing for me in this clip. I mean, there was there was a lot to say about this. And one of the themes of the show, it's kind of like a micro theme, I think, of this not the show as a whole, but this episode, is when so Leto's there by himself and then he's there with Nomi and they're having a conversation and he's reminiscing about the first dates and the uh, Nomi, she says, there's a difference in what we work for and what we live for. And this is Leto's really coming to that. Like he's built his whole career and this is what he works for. But what he really lives for is his relationships with loving people who mm-hmm. support him. And this is the, the same theme that was with Son's father. Like there's some, right? right? He... He lives for those loving relationships. And it took him, both of them, actually, it took them losing it to realize what it is they live for. Right. And I think that goes to that idea that some things, even work, can feel passionate and can be that springboard into the flow of love. So we can feel like we love our work or we love the attention that we get because some of our choices and our behaviors and our works can move us into the flow of love, but we realize that maybe that wasn't the biggest trigger to being in that flow of love. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we have to choose which one is, we maybe choose the relationship with a human. Maybe that's stronger. Right. To me, it reminds me of the, the saying, it's not what we do, but how we do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Or how we do something? Are we doing something from a state of being that is in the flow of love or not? That's really the questions that we have to ask ourselves when we go about our day. Because when when we're in when we're doing something in through a loving state, that's really what we're living for. In my opinion, mm-hmm. if we're if we're in sync with that or not, you know, that's really the question. Is like, are are we in our center? Are we in our vortex, or are we not? Because that really creates a different perception of reality and the amount of joy that we can feel throughout our days. I think that, and when we look at what happens after this scene, when 
Leto at the end, at this point, he's really drunk and he's in total breakdown and total despair. And he's in the fetal position, which I have to say, I remember days when I I've been there. was in the fetal position calling out to God or the universe or whatever to just take the pain away. But um, he, he reaches that point because really it, it, he needs to come to love with himself. We just said the love of the relationship is more important maybe, but also the struggle he's had was because he felt like he had to choose between the relationship and the career, both of which he cares deeply for. But when it comes down to it, and then he kind of tries to commit suicide and we all get freaked out because of the music. Um, and then it's just a lighter. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, leading up to that, knocking on heaven's door, really good song lead up to that scene. <laughs> right. So, Ethan, we've now just turned our podcast into Let's Talk to Ethan <laughs> through a podcast about his music. <laughs> Great job, Ethan. <laughs> so, anyway, Leto then says his world is fake. And because what happens, I think, is in order for us to sustain ourselves in that flow of love and not have it be external we have to come to that place where we love ourselves, And because relationships change, behaviors, no human will ever meet our expectations. It's impossible. Right. Um, and no career will either, or whatever we, no object, none of those things can sustain us in that flow. It has to be something that we connect to through our own heart, our own soul, to coming to terms with ourself as a reflection of that flow of love and realize we are actually part of that flow of love. And I think that's what Leto is reaching at this point and why both you and I said, yeah, I remember being in a fetal position and, you know, you got to have your come to Jesus moment <laughs> to really love yourself. Moment and- or lifetimes and moments, <laughs> so many of them. So... I think that theme just carries, you know, you may see like, oh, so first he's in a bar calling a guy a faggot, then he's reflective and smart in a museum, and then he's ready to kill himself with a fake gun, you know, and it really actually is a continuous flow of that um, exploration of how do I stay in love's flow in every moment, which goes back to what the others were talking about and the the human, the core of human difficulty. Yeah. Which leads us, what are the two things in life? <laughs> love and death, yeah. <laughs> or life and death, but <laughs> love and love. <laughs> so in our last clip, we're going to talk about life and death and cycles of beginnings. Yes, yeah, so we have Riley chilling out. At the the gravestone, and she's having a conversation for the first time with her her deceased loved ones, and then Caffius pops in, and Caffius brings some enlightenment to the situation, as he does. And just to 
show the flow of our, of our podcast too, <laughs> the conversation. I'm just realizing too, like this is another point for both Capius and Riley of choosing relationships. And because really, Riley at this point, she's trying to find herself so she can open to the flow of love again. And Kafius is reminiscing and supporting her in how he remained loving even after uh, grief. But um, I think that when we look at this, we have to realize that one of the reasons, one of the other reasons we don't stay in the flow of life, of love, and that force, in that forceful flow, like her um, Lido's there because the form changed in the breakup. Riley's here because the form changed through death. Caffius talks about the form changing through the loss of his sister. So who didn't die? The who form didn't changed, die? Yeah. Right. The form changes, and so again, it really goes with the idea. We have to remember that if love is a force and we are that force and our choices, are we in the flow or are we not in the flow? Love can't be taken away from us when someone dies or someone leaves. And that gives us the freedom to love deeper. Absolutely. So anyway, let's hear the clip. I cried as if she had died. You know, as she did. But in another way, she lived. That day I learned life and death are always so mixed up together. In the same way, some beginnings are endings. And some endings become beginnings. All right, so... I'm going to go back a little bit, and I don't have this quote verbatim, but back when Will was talking to Jonas, Jonas was talking about how Angelica, they were talking about the the present time, um, and Jonas was talking about, basically, we can't look at the past, and we have to move forward. Mm Mm-hmm. And that just came to mind as we were listening to this clip. And I was thinking about cycles of new beginning and death and changing forms and all this, all this goodness. And I've been thinking about nostalgia lately and this, the, the nostalgia for things that I've really relished and appreciated or something I'd like to have that experience again. And for me, Moving up here to upstate New York was a pretty significant deal because of the relationships I moved away from. And they were very beautiful, close relationships. And, but at the time I moved, it was a conscious decision. It was so it wasn't like death where I had to, you know, abruptly deal with these emotions or feelings. And it wasn't out of, necessity. We'll say it that way. It was a conscious choice to do so. I knew that things would never be the same again. At that at that, at that choice point, I just could look and I could go, oh, you know, hold on to this potential of an experience that I might have over again, but I just knew that wasn't going to happen. 
I think nostalgia, as you're talking about it, to me, I have come to love nostalgia and to cherish it and understand its importance because to me, nostalgia is when we allow ourselves to rest into the memory and to feel it and let it wash over us. And yeah, we may have a slight sadness that we don't have it now, but we're not trying to reach for it when we're nostalgic. We hardly ever, it's not like we're trying to get it back usually. There's some acceptance of that's another time. And we're resting into that memory, that feeling, and allowing us to be there again. And yeah, there's some grief. There's grief in everything because we're constantly changing. And our form of relationship, our form of self is constantly in flux. But it's that ability to allow yourself to not be constricted by time. And and I'm kind of thinking back now to the last clip when that was talking about the clock. I was like, yeah, because... Time is one of our restraints that limits our love, too. And timelines do. Like, we're infinite. And our brains can't even conceive of the number of timelines that we have. We only get these little glimpses. And, like, they're getting glimpses of lives that they imagined because they glided along that timeline into the future and imagined a whole timeline. And then it didn't happen in the perception that they're having But when we realize we can, with nostalgia, jump over to that timeline anytime we want, and just like Caffius is saying, you know, in a way she lived, he may feel nostalgia, and he may have even created an imaginary life of what her life became, and how they're connected over time, even though they don't know each other anymore. But he imagines her living a joyful life. We can imagine that timeline continuing that we missed, even though we're very different. And as those timelines kind of spread out, they feel further and further away because we're constantly becoming a different person formed by our environment, our experiences. But that nostalgia, to me, reflects that love can't even be confined by time. It can't be confined or limited. It's free beyond death. And life, it's free beyond time, it's free beyond connections and forms and timelines and and all of this. And that cyclical, there's a beginning and an ending, and beginnings create or endings create beginnings, and sometimes beginnings are even endings. Like it's just this layered understanding of consciousness all in those lines. Yeah, with the nostalgia, it was like, it's for me, it's, it's on the spectrum of grief, I think, but in a very healthy way where it's appreciation. And because I was able to appreciate because I'm, you know, nostalgia is kind of don't want to say longing, but you're going back to those times and you're appreciate like you're in those moments where like, Oh, man, what a, you know, you tell great stories about those times. And to me now where i'm at now in my in my perspective of things that nostalgia is like a it was something that was completed right it was this complete experience that i can appreciate from my current perspective but because i'm being nostalgic about it it's also a sign that i'm ready to move forward into something new and not to hold on to it right which is part of that freedom, yeah. you know? 
And then knowing that nothing can be taken away, like that love can't be taken away because you can rest into it and remember it and enjoy it in any moment, you know, just like I do with my children uh, or in their early years. I just, you know, you know, you're walking, I see a little blonde boy and I'm like, oh, or a little blonde girl, like, oh. You know, but I just take that moment to go back in time. And when we set ourselves free from the restriction of the limited concept of time, and instead of thinking that that's a bad thing because it causes some sadness, it also causes joy. And we stop trying to control our all our emotions and just let ourselves float all around the timelines, you know, and, and even then, you know, sometimes it's like I take a snapshot of a moment when I'm with, you know, doing something I love or with the family or whatever, because I know in the future that won't look the same. And I just rest into the moment and feel that appreciation for it so that when I do look back, the nostalgia brings joy. Yeah. These are some pretty smart sensates, I think. <laughs> <laughs> So do you have anything to say about the title and how Riley's feeling about how death doesn't let you say goodbye? It's probably layered, I imagine. I think I've said it in a lot of episodes. Right. As she's in it, she's saying to her husband at his grave that the me that loved you, that's not this me, or that me is not how does she say? I didn't. She's just being like the the me that loved you is not this me, right? Right. So she's changed, right? So that person isn't. I'm not that person. So she, that person went with you. So she's kind of that person died. So she's kind right. of talking about she died. A part of her died. That person, that timeline, that one that she thought she would be died and she was rebirthed at that time um really son's father talks about the same thing he thought that good person that he was with her mother died when she died and that because it was tied to the relationship that it didn't continue and then he noticed it was there with son yeah and riley has an opportunity to feel love again in a new way and realize that part that could love is still with her but the aspect of not giving us an opportunity to say goodbye, I don't think we, like you said, I think it's meant to be layered because should we say goodbye? It's the idea, it's when we think we they're gone and there is, it, you know, it, it definitely goes back to we have to let the person live when they die. And so they're still living in a different form. We have to let the change of form instead of an end. You can't end love. You can't end energy. Energy continues. Consciousness continues. So however your belief system interprets that, there is no ending. Good, And then it, it kind of goes into what is goodbye. Goodbye is actually meant to mean until I see you a good again, like stay healthy, good tidings. The Beatles are really in my mind today. It reminds oh me of their gosh. song. They yeah. are you know what? That song comes up when I've done re like I had yeah. somebody that I helped like I was there for her transition 
And the family wanted a reading right after. And she starts singing that song. She wanted played at her funeral. These people were like hours into the grief of mother and wife. And she's singing, I don't know why you say goodbye. Turns out she loved the Beatles, you know, but totally want that played at my my funeral because yeah they're trying to say hello and we're saying goodbye so does it mean death doesn't allow us to say goodbye because we're not supposed to we're supposed to let that part live so we can all live and still continue down the other path that we're taking the new path and we all get to live and we get to move back and remember those moments or does it mean because it comes suddenly because death doesn't always come suddenly really from the moment as a mom, from the moment we get impregnated, we know the baby's going to die sometime. Maybe we're not going to be alive, but at some point, life ends. Or we're going to die and leave that child away. Like like you said, that's intrinsic in life. So it's not really a big surprise. And I'm, I know I sound cold, and I have had sudden death, and it is upsetting, and it's horrible to go through. I'm not, you know, diminishing that, but really, we know, you know, some point we're all going to die. It's no big surprise. So. I think, you know, and for me, this is um, something that I've really begun to master, in my opinion, uh, in my experience, is we do know every, everything's going to change. Everybody's going to die. And for me, the most important thing I can do is embrace the things I appreciate around me with a, with conscious appreciation. Right. And for me, uh, as you may know, if you've been following us in the podcast, we lost a very good friend of ours, Sammy. <laughs> Here we go. I get a little emotional. And for me, um, I, I was able to practice with Sammy at such a great level because I appreciated Sammy's every moment. And there wasn't, there was just this beautiful transition in our relationship where I didn't lose anything because how I was able to consciously appreciate every moment that we had. And it was such a beautiful experience. And my plan here, <laughs> listeners, is that to have that experience with everybody I appreciate in my life going forward. And when that, whatever that relationship changes form, whether that's through death or conscious behavior or unconscious behavior, whatever that may be is just, it wasn't painful because of my conscious appreciation. So it was just a beautiful thing. And I, I'm thinking that only the patrons know who Sammy is, because I think that that's where you're remembering. Oh, I thought we put it on Twitter or Facebook. I'm sorry. Oh, wait. Well, we might have. So Sammy was our dog that died recently, 13 years old, beautiful, beautiful soul. But the April deep dive for Patreons, I talked about, I was the one crying about Sammy. So it was still painful and it was beautiful. And, you know, he, he stays alive. Um, but actually, I'm thinking that that deep dive goes right into what we're talking about even deeper. Right. Um, but yeah, so Sammy was our our dog, and he was with me for 13 years. And um, 
I wasn't there. Like there was that feeling like I didn't get, I did say goodbye, (laughs) but I wasn't there at that moment. But I knew we had said goodbye because we were good, you know, and we will continue to be in the new form together. Um, And I think we put the phone up to his ear. (laughs) But death, death doesn't, yeah, I don't know. I think that is really interesting to me. And I really think it was chosen to let us contemplate that and to challenge us. I think the title was given to us to challenge what that means, because we can, we can take it as kind of Riley's thing that, you know, I, it just, I'm, Honestly, she's still kind of a victim in this. She's going to heal, you know. She's she's surviving, but right. And and she's got the guilt of herself cuz she couldn't go to the funeral cuz that's not the way. Maybe it's even kind of does society let us find a healthy way? Like we have our rituals, but not every ritual is going to be right for every person. And so um yeah, there's I, I don't know. I could go I don't even I don't know. To be honest, this is one of those where I'm like, hmm, why do they pick that title? What are they trying to say? Because to me, that has so many angles. So I guess I would say for me, it's just contemplate it. Yeah, that's good art. Yeah. Let you interpret how you want to, you exactly. know, and everybody can come to different conclusions and inspiration. Yeah. Awesome. So should we leave everyone contemplating death? That seems like a really I think that's, joyful way hey, to leave. I think it is. I, <laughs> I think I, it's good. I just gave everybody like such good, awesome things to think about because death is, I, I love thinking about death. It's, I think it's, um, most people are like, you're crazy, man. But I think about, I've thought about death for decades and it's very integral to life because with you can't really embrace life until you've embraced death. And because we know that we're all going to die, we can practice appreciation. We know change is the only constant in our reality. So why not pick up the tools to make us have a better experience? And the number one thing for me is to know that, okay, great, that's on my side. I know, Sheila, you're gonna die. (laughs) I know I'm gonna die. I know our form is going to change from good, bad, whatever that may be, but forms change. So I know that. So I'm going to appreciate the shit out of every moment. And everybody, he writes my eulogy all the time. Not only does he <laughs> write his my eulogy, so do my kids. My daughter wrote my, like in high school, she had to write um, this project for her life. She, had, she was supposed to write her own eulogy in it too, but she she wrote the scene in it where I die and uh, it was really beautiful. But um, in it, she said she was so used to something to the fact that, you know, she doesn't usually get upset at death because she knows the relationships continue. She was in high school, but that that one, she wrote about that death being hard on her um, because of our closeness. So, okay. So now I have to explain this just real quick. (laughs) Oh yeah. Why you write my eulogy all the time. (laughs) Typically speaking, at a funeral, 
you have a eulogy or you talk about, you know, you, you share wonderful stories about how you want to have remembered the person. And typically they're great stories full of love and appreciation about the, the things we love the most about the person. So for me, one of the practices I do is I sit around and I think about Sheila's eulogy. What the things I would tell a room full of people about the things I loved that Sheila was able to share with me in the world. And that gets me into a sense of appreciation. So that's the exercise. So you can do that with anybody and then <laughs> tell them or not, hey, man, I was thinking about your eulogy. Trust me, it, it comes off as yeah, weird. When yeah, that's you bring it up, like, you're like, what? I'm Why do you do that? Yeah, we're sitting there. He's like starting to vacuum and he's like, yeah, I was thinking about your eulogy again today. Like, uh, can you tell me about it? <laughs> I want to know. Well, I do I because be I know it's what, right. I Well, yeah. And we don't know if I'm going to be there. <laughs> I hope to be there. <laughs> but I do always say, you know, when it comes to death, I'm not going to care. So you guys yeah, do whatever you want. Yep. It's all yours. That's for you. All right. So that's this episode. All right. It was great chatting with you guys. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. So that's a wrap. You can send us some questions or comments at, on our Twitter at live underscore sense8.com you can always send us an email that's team at live sense8.com in order to support the show we have some amazing perks over on patreon.com forward slash live sense8 so head on over there to support the show so we can grow and as always thank you so much for spending your time with us here today on the live sense8 podcast and thank you for all your love and support on social media until next time have a good one